0: be anxious for nothing have any of you ever had those words weaponized against you have you ever been condemned for worrying for being afraid for being anxious or even worse have you been condemned for having an actual anxiety disorder So many vulnerable Christians I care about have experienced that, myself included, where people have very real fears and very true troubles or mental illnesses, and other Christians have condemned them using these words, don't be anxious about anything, or in Peter's words, cast your anxieties on the Lord. You're doing something wrong if you're worried, Today I want to re-examine this emotion concept in Philippians and, spoiler alert, I'm going to argue that anxious is a bad translation. Did any of you watch Ted Lasso? Really charming TV show about an American football coach who moved to the UK to coach British football or soccer. And one of the episodes in the last season took place in Amsterdam. My family and I lived in the Netherlands for eight years, so my husband and I loved that episode. We laughed, we cried, we related to learning to ride a bicycle, and one of the storylines in that episode was all about Rebecca Welton, the owner of the football club, meeting a Dutch man and learning the Dutch emotion concept gezellig. Now the Dutch hard guttural G makes that word a little difficult to pronounce for us Americans, but it's spelled G-E-Z-E-L-L-I-G, gezellig and he's trying to explain to Rebecca what this means. And if you know a Dutch person and your friends for any length of time, they will try to explain this emotion concept to you because we don't have it in English and they're very proud of this emotion that they have. So it's a little bit untranslatable. There's not a direct English parallel. But gezellig is like being with your friends, being with your family and your loved ones in a small intimate gathering. You're maybe having something nice to drink and you're feeling connection and togetherness. It's often translated into English as cozy, but that doesn't get all the nuances of the word. So as I lived in the Netherlands, uh, my Dutch friends would try to explain this to me. And what they did is how we all learn emotion concepts they told me many different instances that could be identified as chazelich. This is chazelich, this is chazelich. This is un it's un This is not the opposite of that. So over time, I began to learn this culture-bound emotion concept to the point where I think I can construct it myself. There are times I'll be with my family now in Wheaton and we'll say, oh, this is so chazelich. But I still miss nuances of it because I'm not native to the Netherlands. When I moved back to the US and I started doing pre-research for my dissertation, I read a book, Between Us, by a Dutch social scientist named Bacha Mesquita, And she wrote about Kazelik and she said, it's a winter emotion. And I thought, how did I miss that nuance? I-, I didn't realize that was part of it. And even there, I think there might be a generation gap. She is a boomer and Younger Dutch people would say, no, you can have gezellekite like on a terrace in the summer with a beer. But in her generation, this meant like around the fire with a hot cocoa or something. So I've, I've tried to learn this motion concept for years. I thought I had it and I was still missing nuance. And it made me wonder, with a culture that's truly similar to mine, in a language that's really not that different from mine, If I have so much trouble understanding and constructing this emotion concept, how much harder is it for me to read emotion concepts in scripture and think that I understand them because I've mapped my American English word onto them? And then when Paul says, do not be anxious, my word anxious is actually what he meant. Well, he was using a different word, merim nao. So what did Paul mean when he said that? And is it the same as my translation? If we can't grasp something that's so close, when we are then separated from scripture thousands of years across language, across culture, how much more are we missing nuance? So I'm a second year PhD student with Reverend Dr. Esau McCauley at Wheaton College, and I'm doing a dissertation on emotions in the Gospel of Luke and how Jesus disciples and shapes his followers' emotions. And I'm working with two emotion theorists, Lisa Feldman Barrett and Bacha Mosquito, who I mentioned, I love using the two of them together because they're friends and they reference each other's work all the time. When I first read Dr. Barrett's book, How Emotions Are Made, she was talking about spending time with Dr. Mosquita in Belgium and they were learning cheselichite together. So Dr. Barrett uh, wrote a really important book, like I mentioned, How Emotions Are Made. And I'm going to go into emotion theory a little bit here so that we can come back around and talk about Paul's emotion concept. In Barrett's book, she says that emotions are the meaning that our minds make from our body's sensations. So in any given situation, when something happens that makes us begin to be reactive, we take all these building blocks of emotion We take our interoception, which is the sense of what's going on inside of our bodies, so an awareness of our body's sensations. We take the prediction function of our mind that's quickly trying to figure out what's going to happen next and map a concept onto it. It's gonna prepare us to take action toward our goals. And we take our history and our language and the emotions our parents and caregivers and other socializing figures taught us growing up. And we very quickly try to put a word to what we're experiencing. And that meaning making step, that is an emotion. An emotion is not the same thing as a feeling. And a, a feeling is a building block of emotion, but emotion is a step beyond that it's meaning making. So, This all happens in microseconds and when we do this process, we've constructed an emotion. And so This is Barrett's theory of emotion, that it's constructed that we have these emotion concepts in our minds and we call them up when we need them and they prepare us to take action. Now Bacha Mesquita has a complementary theory about how cultures shape emotions. Our emotion concepts come not just from inside us, but from the culture around us from our language, our parents, our pastors, our teachers, the books we read. Emotions are not universal. They're not basic and inborn to every human. Now the ability to construct emotion, all humans have that. But which emotions we construct are different from culture to culture. And again, that points to the trouble that we have in translating emotion from the Bible. And trouble in translating the Bible into other languages. We're not only translating words, we're trying to translate emotion concepts. David Constant has written a really helpful book on translating emotion in the Bible. He points out that we can't translate word for word. We have to try to translate this entirety of an emotion concept. And it has to be culturally bound to the culture it came from, and then somehow culturally bound to the culture we're we're translating into, and this is a complex process. So, how are we supposed to grasp what Paul is talking about when he says, be anxious for nothing in Philippians 4, 6? As you know from the past few weeks, Mother Amanda's been preaching on Philippians. I saw her sermons, and she's given you so much context, so you're already... With the people in Philippi, you're understanding what's going on for them. Paul's writing to this church that has great affection for him and he has great affection for them. There's a lot of shared love between them. Now, Philippi was a really long way from both Ephesus and Rome, the two possible sites for his imprisonment during this time that he was writing from. And it's a long way to travel. It is still a difficult travel now, even with boats and planes and, and buses. I am running Northern Seminary's study trip to Turkey and Greece, led the trip last summer, and I wanted to change the itinerary for this upcoming summer. I really wanna to get to Philippi. We did the seven churches of Revelation, Ephesus, then we took a cruise across to Athens, and we saw Corinth and Cancrea, but we didn't get up to Thessaloniki and Philippi, and I really want to get up to Philippi. And so I have been trying for weeks to find a cruise itinerary or a flight itinerary or a bus trip that would get us to Philippi. And finally, the travel agent wrote back and he said, well, I can get you there for 700 extra dollars per person. And I said, I think we're gonna have to skip Philippi on this trip, okay. So if it's that difficult <laughs> to get to Philippi from Ephesus uh, in 2023, how much more difficult was it when you had to walk or sail on very dangerous wooden sailing ships? So Paul's friend, Epaphroditus, had traveled from Philippi to wherever Paul was, either up to Italy or down to Ephesus, where Paul was imprisoned. And probably Epaphroditus was supposed to help him long-term and be a co-worker for him, but he got sick, possibly on the journey, and he was so sick that he almost died. And word had very slowly gotten back to the church in Philippi, and they were worried about him. And Paul was worried. Paul was worried about Epaphroditus and he was worried about the Philippian church because they were worried. And there's just a lot of worry that's going on in this situation from everyone. So Paul cares about them. He does not want them to worry. He wants to make sure they're okay. So he writes this letter and he's going to send it with Epaphroditus back to Philippi. Um, He's gonna send Epaphroditus because he's probably recovered enough to travel but not to stay long-term. And then Paul's gonna send Timothy later on to follow, and then Timothy's going to carry back their response. No email, just had to carry these letters on these very long, dangerous journeys. So Paul uses this word, merimnao, twice in his letter, once with a very positive connotation in Philippians 2, and once with a potentially negative connotation, question mark, in Philippians 4. A lot of people read it negatively, but I'm starting to think it's not. This is also a word that's used in Matthew 6, when Jesus says, Don't be worried about what you're gonna wear, what you're gonna eat. He uses it in Luke 12 uh, in a similar sermon, and he also uses it when he's talking to Martha in Bethany. Martha, Martha, you're worried and distracted by many things. Paul uses this word in his Corinthian correspondence. So it's an emotion word that we often translate concern or worry or anxious, but it also has other meanings. So I think we can't just map our word anxious onto it and believe we fully understand what Paul's talking about. And then go a step further and condemn people who are anxious. So in Philippians 2.20, Paul writes about Timothy and it's a commendation about Timothy's character. He is genuinely concerned for your welfare. And this is a very positive kind of concern. There's nothing negative in Paul's use of this word here. Timothy's concerned for you. It's not self-focused, it's others-focused. In Philippians 2.20, I have no one so like myself who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Genuinely concerned. It's a positive connotation, positive commendation. And in Philippians 4.6, Paul is talking about some of their fears, concerns, the conflicts that are going on, and he tells them, don't be anxious about anything. But in our culture, the word anxious has really taken on a medicalized meaning, and it's generally related to anxiety disorders. So I wonder if it's the best way to keep translating this in English. We get our emotion concepts from many places throughout our lives. I like to use these little otter emotion cards with my kids. My eight-year-old daughter, Junia, loves these cards. Um, we have a, an anxious butterfly, for example, and a worried whale. And there's, there's beautiful watercolor illustrations with a little definition of the emotion and then prompts on the back, when have you felt this before, what are you feeling now, and prompts for talking to your caregiver about what to do when you feel these emotions. And when my kids feel overwhelmed, I'll say, do you want to sit down and look at the emotion cards, tell me what you're feeling, and let's talk about it. And ang- the anxious butterfly, it's an uneasy, uncomfortable feeling often relating to worry and fear. But I wonder if that is what Paul means by merimnao. Does he mean um, this uh, a feeling of uncertainty, jitteriness? Does he mean having a panic attack? Does he mean an anxiety disorder? Um, does he mean complex post-traumatic stress disorder? Does he mean social anxiety? Does he mean something that you have to take medication for because your body feels like it's gonna come apart at the seams? Is he saying, don't do this thing that you have no control over that's happening in your body? If we say anxious when we translate this verse and we preach about this verse, I think that what our modern American audience is going to hear is a medicalized definition of anxiety Um, which might not be what Paul means. So where did Paul get his emotion concepts? Well, he got them from his culture, which was steeped in the Hebrew Bible. So I was looking at our other readings for today. And if we look at Isaiah 25, you'll see at the end it says, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Or if we look at Psalm 23, Psalm 23, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. These verses that Paul grew up reciting, hearing, reading, informed his emotion concepts. And so I think that there is a Jewish emotion concept that is something like trust in God's goodness and future provision because of how God has been faithful to us in the past. Now that's not as pithy as one word, but I think that's an emotion concept that Paul has and that he's maybe trying to teach his friends because he says, not just be anxious for nothing, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. How much does that sound like Isaiah 25 and Psalm 23? He's teaching them, you don't need to be concerned because instead of constructing worry, you can construct trust in God's provision because he's provided for us in the past. You can construct this hopeful emotion instead. And the more we rehearse mentally positive things, the more our mind will leap to constructing those kinds of emotions in the moment. The more we ruminate on troublesome things, the more quickly our mind will construct uncomfortable emotions. That's the way God designed our brains to work. So Paul says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. I think that whole section of thought goes together He's teaching them how to rewire their brains with the neuroplasticity God created them with to construct hope in place of worry. But we miss some of that. And I did a study on sermons that have been preached on this passage and commentaries uh, and podcast episodes about these verses and how they're interpreted in the church today. And are we saying in these messages that anxiety is a sin? John Piper thinks so. In his podcast, he says with regard to anxiety, the answer is yes. Quote, Paul and Jesus explicitly command us not to be anxious, so to be anxious is a sin, end quote. Is that what Paul's saying? I found a pastor on Twitter who is the co-host of the, I'm not making this up, the Theo Bros podcast. who said, quote, anxiety is sin. Fundamentally, we become anxious because we've chosen to doubt God's good and perfect will for our lives, end quote. And someone called him out on, on that and said, would you really say that to someone who has an anxiety disorder? And he says, yes, my wife does, And quote. The worst possible thing I could do is tell her that Jesus' commands are completely out of reach and the gospel is insufficient to overcome what God clearly calls sin to tell a person this is merely psychological is a lie and leaves her hopeless, end quote. So he doubles down on condemning his wife with an anxiety disorder and tells her that she's sinning when she's anxious because of what Paul says. (sighs) That makes me angry. (laughs) Speaking of emotion concepts. So is this medical condition what Paul's talking about? Or, Or the emotion concept of uncertainty? Our emotions, Our our initial reactivity, it's kind of a whole brain process, but we get that initial reactivity in our midbrain, which processes microseconds faster than our prefrontal cortex. Now our prefrontal cortex is where we make moral and ethical decisions. So our emotions truly begin to happen before we can make a moral choice about them. And if that is the way God made our brains to work, how can we condemn people for emotions that start to happen before they can control them? Now what we do after them and the moral decisions we make and the decisions we make about how we're gonna treat people after we construct an emotion, the Spirit can help transform us to make those godly responses. But I don't think we should be condemning people or ourselves for our emotions. We also can change our emotion concepts over time. This is what I mean when I, when I write about discipling our emotions. I think that Jesus expects his followers to learn new emotion concepts and to change their values to be more like his, to change their character to be more like his by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit's power to renew our minds, as Romans says. And if our minds are renewed and our emotions are constructed in our minds, I think that also means that our emotions are transformed and renewed. So when Jesus models emotion for his followers, when he weeps in front of them, when he's angry, when he is joyful, he's giving them a model of emotional life. And so I think that our emotions can be discipled just like every other aspect of our lives. We can submit our emotions to sanctification, just like our prayer lives and our money and our words. Our emotions can be changed. We truly can learn new emotion concepts over time. So what is a possible better translation of what Paul's saying here than than anxious? My friend Scott McKnight says in the Second Testament, he translates it, do not be disturbed, which I like. It's much more gentle. Scott and I have talked a lot about this. We don't have this medicalized meaning uh, attached to disturbed in English like we do to anxious. So I think that gets more at what Paul is communicating. He's consoling them, he's encouraging them, he loves them. There's no condemnation in his letter. Now we know that Paul has written condemning letters, Corinthians, but this is not one of those. This is a loving, gentle letter. He's not talking about sin here. Um, So I think do not be disturbed possibly gets at a better meaning. Um, One of the key lexicons also gives to be unduly concerned as a better translation or as a possible meaning. I think that works so much better, because then that's talking about the focus, or the degree, or the rumination, or the priorities. Don't be unduly concerned. You know, when Jesus says, don't worry about what you're going to eat, as a mother of five children, I am constantly worrying about what we're going to eat, because I have teenagers now, and they eat everything, and the groceries are gone after three days, and I'm shopping again, and I'm making food, and does this meet everyone's dietary restrictions and preferences, and I'm always worrying about food, but is that what Jesus means? No, he means don't be unduly concerned about what you're going to eat because God is going to provide for you. So I think that rumination is a really key component of this. We can choose what we ruminate on, even if we don't choose what we initially begin to construct. So by, by prayer and thanksgiving, instead of by ruminating on hard things, by turning them over to God, when Peter says cast or toss your anxieties onto him, I think it's handing responsibility over to God to provide for us instead of carrying that weight on our own shoulders. This from Paul and from Peter and from Jesus, when this word is used, I think it is an encouragement, not a condemnation. I originally did the research on this passage in Dr. Doug Mu's last class at Wheaton in the spring before he retired in his Pauline theology class. Now I'm a gospel scholar, I'm not a Paul scholar, but I did this foray into into Paul. And as I was writing that final term paper on Paul's use of this word in, in Philippians, I was also finishing my dissertation proposal and another class and my husband was traveling for work and our basement flooded and our washing machine broke in two separate incidents. And both together caused so much laundry, so much laundry, a mountain of laundry that I couldn't wash. And I was so anxious. My hands were shaking, I had this crushing weight on my chest, and I was just, I have to finish this term paper, but my kids are running out of clean clothes, and I don't have anyone to help me. And I I used all the therapeutic tools I had in my arsenal to help myself calm down. And then I thought, what if I give Paul's advice a try? What if I pray about this? (laughs) And so I I prayed, God, I can't handle the mental load of laundry anymore. Not this week. I'm gonna close the door to the laundry room and I'm gonna leave the pile and I'm, I'm gonna write this paper. Um, One of uh, my husband's relatives lives in town. Um, I attend Church of the Savior in Wheaton. Some of you may know Father Kevin Miller and Mother Karen Miller. They're my husband's aunt and uncle. Um, And they called me and they said, we heard your washing machine broke. We'd like to wash your laundry for you. They said, just bring it over, drop it off. We'll wash it and bring it back to you. And when I dropped off the laundry, they said to me, just off the cuff, they said, hey, you don't need to give laundry another thought. And at that moment, I knew that this wasn't just like a general answer to prayer or just a general nice thing to do. It was a very specific answer to prayer because the Holy Spirit knew what I had prayed. They didn't, but through them, I felt like God spoke to me. You said you can't think about laundry and they're telling you, you don't need to think about laundry. I've got it covered. And that was so meaningful to me. I didn't need to worry because God and God's people in community we're caring for me. And I think that there's a community element to Paul's solution as well. He says, I'm gonna send Epaphroditus back to you so you know he's okay, and you'll feel better, and I'll feel better, and Timothy cares about your concerns and he's going to come. There's this community sharing. So Paul's solution is not isolate yourself, make yourself stop thinking anxious thoughts. White knuckle it, control it, that's not what he's saying. It's turn to God, don't be disturbed, don't be unduly concerned. God cares about you and God's people are here to care for you as well. So if you're worried about many things this morning, God does not condemn you. You're not sinning and you're not lacking faith. God hears you in very minute detail and God cares about you. And God's people are here to care for you as well. God's people are ready to help you and to bear your burdens with you. You can cast your concerns onto God, onto God's people and receive that help. If you're comfortable, I'd invite you to close your eyes and if not, keep them open. But think about the worries, the concerns, the burdens that you came in with this morning Where are you feeling that in your body? Is it a weight on your chest, a weight on your shoulders, grinding your teeth, tense jaws, shaking hands? Where are you feeling those burdens? And can you unblend those from your body and release them to God? Maybe picture yourself throwing them to him. Picture them floating off of you and instead invite in a sense of God's care for you. Remember times that God has provided for you and God's people in the past, and trust that God is going to provide for you in the future. And receive into your body the hope and trust that God cares for you. Let's pray. God, thank you that you clothe the flowers. Thank you that you number the hairs on our heads. You know our needs and that you are good. You're a good parent who gives us good gifts. Thank you that you provide through us through your body. Thank you that when we share everything in common, none of us is in want. We pray that you'd meet our needs today through your miraculous provision and through the good gift of your body. May we be your hands and feet to each other so that we don't need to be unduly concerned, but that we can trust in you.